Hi everyone, my name is Drew Ray, and this is DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. To prevent accidents, we first need to understand why they happen. There are lots of different possible explanations, but they all boil down to failing to properly manage the risk associated with hazards. If we can explain why the risk stopped being properly managed, we know why the accident occurred. One explanation is something I call the Feynman Gap. The gulf between engineering understanding of risk and management understanding of risk. The concept is named after Professor Richard Feynman, drummer, lockpicker, Nobel Prize winning physicist, and member of the Rogers Commission investigating the Challenger accident. The first clue to the existence of the gap comes from a teleconference on the night before Challenger launched. A group of engineers was opposing the launch because they were worried about the effect of cold weather on the O-rings. They were supported by a manager called Mr Lund. One of the senior managers told Mr Lund to put on his management hat instead of his engineering hat, and he subsequently changed his opposition, overruling the engineers. Here's Feynman himself speaking in his work, Mr Feynman Goes to Washington. Feynman is visiting the shuttle engine team to see if they had similar problems to the boosters. You'll have to imagine the American accent, I'm sorry. But then I had a second thought. I said, in order to speed things up, I'll tell you what I'm doing so you know where I'm aiming. I want to know whether there's the same lack of communication between the engineers and the management who are working on the engine as we found in the case of the booster rockets. Mr. Lovingood says, I don't think so. As a matter of fact, although I'm now a manager, I was trained as an engineer. All right, I said. Here's a piece of paper each. Please write on your paper the answer to this question. What do you think is the probability that a flight would be uncompleted due to a failure in this engine? Feynman goes on to describe how each of the engineers produced an estimate, in the range between 1 in 200 and 1 in 300. Lovingood, the manager, wrote some lines about past experience, quality control and engineering judgement. Feynman resumes. Well, I said... I've got four answers, and one of them weaseled. I turned to Mr. Lovingood. I think you weaseled. I don't think I weaseled. You didn't tell me what your confidence was, sir. You told me how you determined it. What I want to know is, after you determined it, what was it? He says, 100%. The engineer's jaws drop. My jaw drops. I look at him. Everybody looks at him. Uh, uh, minus epsilon. So I say, well, yes, that's fine. Now the only problem is, what is epsilon? He says, 10 to the minus 5. That's the Feynman gap. Feynman describes the same problem throughout the shuttle program. Engineers and management with vastly different perceptions of the size and nature of risk. The one thing Feynman doesn't quite pick up on is the cause of the gap. As someone with a hands-on approach himself and a healthy disrespect for any form of authority, he bought into the engineering perception that managers are grown in some sort of artificial vat cloning facility. But the true problem is not really managers who don't understand engineering, or engineers who don't understand how to speak to management. It's engineers who don't want to be managers and refuse to accept that they are managers. 
As a result, they never learn or practice the science and skills of management, to the point they become exactly the sort of incompetent manager that made them not want to be a manager in the first place. When I was a university student, I wanted to be an engineer, not a manager. I had this vague idea that after many years of experience, some engineers shifted to management positions, but the rest of us stayed as technical experts. It took me many years in the real world to realise that engineering is management. Engineers apply the principles of science to the design, assembly, construction and operation of things that solve real-world problems, and both the things and the problems include people. I could just see the earlier me in a student the other day, who told me that a lecture on leadership wasn't relevant to them, because they were still students and it would be many years before they were in a leadership position. An engineer is in a leadership position the moment they graduate. The question never is, are you an engineer or are you a manager? In an engineering organisation, you're both. The only question is, are you an engineer who is managing well? We don't often look to the military for our examples of good safety management. But they seem to be the only training bodies who really get this one. They know that a freshly minted officer, straight out of training, must already know how to lead. This doesn't mean they don't listen to experienced enlisted staff. It doesn't mean there aren't more senior leaders who lead the junior leaders. It does mean that they recognise there's no miraculous divide where you stop doing and start managing. We can accidentally create that chasm, though, through the way we educate and lead engineers, and it cuts right through our management of risk. Our accident for today is the Hyatt Regency walkway collapse. After I talked about Alaska Airlines 261 in episode 19, a few people asked for more about the relationship between structural safety and system safety, and the Hyatt Regency is a good illustration. It's also a tale about personal responsibility and the need for good engineers to be good managers. The Hyatt Regency Hotel in Kansas City featured a spectacular multi-storey open atrium, crossed by suspended walkways on each floor. During a dance competition on the 17th of July 1981, the atrium was packed with dancers and spectators. The fourth floor walkway fell onto the second floor walkway, which fell into the crowd below. At the time, it was the deadliest building accident in the United States, and it still holds that unfortunate title unless you count the collapse of the South Tower of the World Trade Center. From a strictly technical point of view, the accident is very easy to explain. Each walkway ran along box beams, which were in turn suspended from the ceiling by long, thin hanger rods. The bit where the box beams connected to the hanger rods failed, due to bad design. To picture what happened, imagine someone hanging off the side of a cliff, clinging to a rope. If a second person clings to the same rope, there's double the load on the rope, but it doesn't affect the first person. Now, imagine instead that the second person isn't clinging to the rope, they're clinging to the feet of the first person. The first person's arms now have to carry double the load. Under the original design, there was a single set of rods with two walkways hanging onto them, like two people on the same rope. 
At each connection point, the walkway rested on washers and nuts screwed onto the rod. The design was changed so that each rod became a pair of rods. One rod ran to the fourth floor, and a second ran from the fourth floor to the second floor. The load on the fourth floor connection was doubled, because now the second floor was hanging from the fourth floor instead of just from the same rod. This was bad, but it wasn't the first mistake. Even the original single rod design was only 60% as strong as it should have been. So the final design was half that. It could only carry 30% of the load specified in the Kansas City Building Code. Quoting from the Department of Commerce report, which focused on the physical mechanism of the accident, the ultimate capacity of the walkways was so significantly reduced that from the day of construction they only had minimal capacity to resist their own weight and had virtually no capacity to resist additional loads imposed by people. Based on reviews of the TV footage from the dance competition, 60 people were standing on the walkways when they fell. Just in case I haven't emphasised just how bad this design was, when they tried to work out exactly how the walkway collapsed, the analysis was made difficult by the fact that there were too many candidate explanations. Any one of the rod walkway connections could have failed under the conditions they were experiencing. It was just a matter of luck which one broke first. I should also make clear that this was purely a design issue, not shoddy construction. The report found that the quality of the workmanship and the materials were not factors in the collapse. To work out how this happened, we need to follow a chain of events involving designs and engineering drawings. This is a bit like a shell game. You know that street hu hustler's trick where they hide a ball under one of three cups and you need to spot which cup the ball is under? The key items will move around. The decision to use two rods instead of one and the design of the connection yourself. See if you can work out whose hands the responsibility ends up in. The owners of the building were Crown Centre Redevelopment Organisation. We'll just call them Crown. The architects were PBNDML Architects Planners Incorporated. We'll just call them the architects. The structural engineers were called GCE. Two key players were Jack Gillam and Daniel Duncan. The general contractor was called Eldridge and Haven Steel fabricated the steel components. Planning for the hotel began in early 1976 with the architect and the owner's crown. They began discussions with the structural engineers, Jack Gillam and Daniel Duncan at GCE, a few months later. The concept evolved over the next year and a half, and construction began at the end of 1978. Two months after construction had started, a contract for structural engineering services was finally signed. Two months after that, the project engineer and senior project designer left GCE. Somewhere in mid-1978, an engineer working for GCE prepared drawings of the connection between the walkway and the hanging rods, marked with load details. The load marking details are very important because they indicate that the design isn't a final design. The markings are requirements that the final design needs to meet. The detailed drawing didn't show any bolts or any welds. A GCE draftsman copied out the design as a final blueprint, but left off the load markings, and those structural drawings were issued in August. In December, Haven was selected as the steel component fabricator. 
Part of the fabrication process was preparing shop drawings from the structural engineering drawings. Haven were considered by GCE to be experts in connection design, so it wasn't unusual to leave design of the connections up to them. In February, after communication between Haven and GCE, the exact content of which was disputed afterwards, the walkway design was changed to two rods instead of one. Probably what happened is Haven proposed the change to make fabrication more easy, and GCE gave tentative approval based on initial calculations, waiting for the revised engineering drawings before they gave formal approval. Meanwhile, the half-completed shop drawings were outsourced due to high workload at Haven. The detail they were outsourced to assumed that the connection design was already completed, and so he simply marked that part of the drawing with a weld symbol. The shop drawings were updated, sent back to Haven, then sent on to GCE for review and approval. Remember, the original project engineer and senior designer had already left GCE, so a technician with no formal qualifications ended up reviewing the drawings. GCE stamped them approved and sent them back to Haven, who built the connections. Haven then fabricated the walkway steel according to the structural drawings, as interpreted in the shop drawings. In October that year, the atrium roof collapsed during construction. This isn't the walkway collapse we're discussing, it's a separate incident where no one was hurt. There was an independent investigation, but Gillam, on behalf of GCE, promised to review the design of all of the atrium steel connections. In fact, only the connections directly related to the roof were reviewed. Finding and fixing the problems with the design and construction of the roof drew attention away from the job of completing the review of all connections. So can you see why I called it a shell game? I put a ball under one of three cups and shuffle them round. Which cup is the ball under? Guess right and win a prize. Lift any cup though and the ball isn't there. Sorry, too bad. And the secret to the hustler trick is the ball isn't under any of the cups. I palmed it when you weren't looking. No one actually designed the connections between the walkways and the rods. Who you blame for this depends on whose job you think it was to make sure that someone designed the connections. The owner, Crown, would claim that they discharged their responsibility by hiring a competent structural engineering firm to do the work. Except they didn't actually formally hire them until after construction had started. The structural engineers, GCE, would say that they discharged their responsibility by delegating to reputable experts in designing connections. The earlier roof collapse, though, showed that this wasn't working. They had clear counter-evidence that delegation wasn't causing the job to be done well. The various court cases converged on the idea that there should have been a single person responsible for the overall safety of the design, and that was the engineer of record, Jack Gillam at GCE. The legal view oversimplifies the engineering reality, and I've probably oversimplified the legal view. Just because someone is in charge doesn't mean it's their job to personally check every detail of the design. In fact, there are many times when it would be irresponsible to do so, either because they lack the right sort of technical expertise, or because their time would be better spent paying attention to other things. Jack Gillam was found guilty of gross negligence and misconduct, and he lost his licence to practice engineering.
20 years later though, Gillam was still speaking at conferences, taking responsibility for the disaster, emphasising the responsibility engineers hold, and in his own words, trying to scare the daylights out of them so they didn't make the same mistake. In other words, this was an engineer with an incredible sense of personal responsibility. There's always a danger in describing accidents, that the actions of people at the time seem too stupid or too irresponsible to be realistic. Remember that it wasn't necessarily Gillam's job to check the drawings. It was his job to make sure there was a process and a culture in place so that the drawings were checked well. In the late 1970s, there was a drive to accelerate construction project schedules, to remove needless bureaucracy and make work, and to streamline engineering processes. It wasn't that the individuals weren't still diligent, but that the organisations became vulnerable to disturbances and distractions. When changes were made to the design, when plans shifted about who would conduct the work, when key staff left, it was too easy to focus on the task in front and to believe that someone else was equally focused on every other important task. Only by understanding that Gillam was a competent engineer with a high level of personal integrity can we understand the nature of the mistake he made and avoid repeating it ourselves. This ties into the relationship between system safety and structural safety. Buildings have hazards in the same way as any complex system. These range from threats to individuals from falling or colliding with something, to threats to the whole building from fire or structural failure. In a novel system, these hazards would translate into specific requirements. When you have a set of systems though, all with very similar safety requirements, they tend to get encoded in design rules. The focus of the safety program becomes making sure these design rules are applied correctly and that they're independently checked. This is true for building design, but also for things like railway signalling and airport power systems. It may not even be necessary to have a dedicated safety person, so long as someone has the job of making sure that the system of rules and checks is fit for purpose. That was the mistake that was made in this case. Drawing mistakes happen. Miscommunication happens. Good management systems reduce the likelihood of mistakes and reduce the likelihood of mistakes staying in the final design. The Hyatt Regency collapse has become a standard case study in civil engineering education. It is used not just to teach ethics, but also good design and review processes. Back in episode 22 of DisasterCast, I discussed bicycle safety. I've got one subtopic that I didn't address back then, and one correction or update. The topic that I didn't address was cyclist position on the road when there isn't a bike lane. It's come up in listener feedback, and I was curious about it myself. There are two questions here. Firstly, is it safer for cyclists to ride in single file or two abreast? And secondly, if you're by yourself, should you hug the side of the road or ride out in the middle of the lane? The idea of riding abreast or in the middle of the lane is often called claim the lane, or vehicular cycling. There are three reasons cyclist organisations give why they think it's safer. The first is that the cyclist is more visible. 
they become a road object rather than a side of the road object. This makes sense and is quoted as fact in some papers, but I haven't seen many studies that actually examine it. The ones that I've seen are to do with roundabouts, where edge positioning is unquestionably dangerous. The second reason is that it forces car drivers to make a deliberate overtaking action by changing lanes, rather than trying to squeeze past the cyclist in the same lane. This is true with a caveat. As cyclists move away from the edge of the road, the amount of room cars leave may get actually smaller until the point where they deliberately change lanes to overtake. So claiming the lane is good, but half-hearted claiming the lane may be more dangerous than not doing it at all. The third reason is that for a group of cyclists, it actually shortens the overall overtaking distance by cutting the length of the group in half when you ride two abreast. There's one other reason that I've found in studies, but not on the cyclist organisation pages. Riding in the middle of the lane is associated with safer turning behaviour by the cyclist. It means they don't have to cut across the road lane to turn right, and this sort of last-minute crossing is highly dangerous. There is a broader social effect at play, which could potentially counteract the technical advantages of riding in the centre of the lane. The behaviour is seen as inconsiderate by car drivers, and despite the apparent beliefs of many who frequent cyclist messaging boards, annoying other road users is not a safe behaviour. Just as poor cycling infrastructure causes cyclists to ride dangerously, frustration and impatience causes motorists to overtake badly. Riding abreast or in the middle of the road where there's no opportunity for cars to change lanes to overtake isn't safe for anybody. Once a car has slowed down to wait for an opportunity to pass, the safest thing for the cyclist to do is to help create that opportunity. If you're in any doubt about that, just imagine a car moving to overtake a centre lane cyclist on a narrow country road when a lorry comes the other way. Which way do you think the car will dodge? After all this background though, I should point out that the evidence is circumstantial, but all points in the same direction. Riding abreast or in the middle of the lane is probably safer most of the time, but only when there isn't a dedicated bike lane and when it's done considerately. We don't know for sure, and it's tricky to get hard evidence without using lots of cameras, which then introduces the problems of selection bias and Hawthorne effects. The correction and update I need to make is on the question of who is to blame in cycling accidents. You may recall that one of the potential confounding factors was the high proportion of children and students involved, which tends to tip the statistics towards the cyclist doing something illegal or unsafe before the accident. In the episode I said that most accidents involved the cyclist doing something dangerous or illegal, but that this was better attributed to design factors rather than blaming the individuals. A 2010 Australian study by Johnson, Charlton and Newstead disagrees with me. They put helmet cameras on 13 cyclist commuters and studied near misses and collisions with traffic. The advantage of this trial design is that it captures a lot of events that don't result in injuries, and it can capture what each party did just before the event. For a four-week trial, with only a dozen participants, they recorded a truly scary 54 near misses and two actual collisions. 
the overwhelming majority of events were vehicles moving left or turning left, showing no awareness of the presence of the cycle, either before or after the incident. In around 90% of these cases, the cyclist was behaving safely and legally at the time. Now, this isn't a big study, but it backs up a similarly designed 2002 study in America, where the cameras were in the cars instead. Both studies point out the same thing I did with the cyclist at fault accidents. The cause of the problem isn't necessarily bad motorist behaviour, and even when it is, it's likely to be made worse by situational factors. If you've got questions or doubts relating to any of the topics on DisasterCast, do feel free to send them in. A lot of the topics I cover are inspired by listener feedback. I'm a little disconcerted, actually, that no one has pulled me up over my descriptions and characterizations of all the accidents. I'll have to devote an episode segment to Johnson and Holloway's paper, just to make clear that any safety professionals listening really should be reading the original accident reports for themselves. And if you do that, I'm sure there are mistakes that I've made that you can find. And that's the end of another episode of DisasterCast. Thank you to everyone who's written a review or tweeted about the show. Not enough for the bonus episode, unfortunately, but they're all appreciated. You can find resources and transcripts for each episode on disastercast.co.uk. There are also links there to fill out the listener survey, comment on each episode, or send feedback. If you're listening to this near the time of release, the next episode will be out on 11th of February. Keep safe.